Hello, 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 my friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Allison Geskin. What do all great leaders have in common? Today, my friends, we welcome a unique lens into the world of leadership. Brent Baroudis, president of the Partnership Group, has worked with some of the biggest names in sports, banking, telecommunication, education, arts, culture, and government. He and his extraordinarily talented team specialize in sponsorship marketing between properties, rights holders, and sponsors. This, my friends, is absolutely leadership in action. Let's dive in, shall we? Welcome, Brent. Thank you very much, Austin. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I just wanted to recognize that today I'm broadcasting from where I live, work, and play on the territories of the Coast Salish people. This land that I'm on often is referred to as unceded territory, which truly should be referred to as taken without due course or agreement. Both First Nations and Métis people are the spiritual, cultural, and cultural keepers their traditional lands, and still to this day, they continue to practice their values, languages, beliefs, and knowledge. And I'm grateful for, and I pay respect for the privilege to present to you today and to be part of this podcast today on this land and thank these people for their hospitality while I'm here on what's rightfully their land. Thanks again for having me, Alice, and I look forward to this conversation. What a beautiful gift. Brent, everything that has led you to now What would you say would be the most critical skill or experience or competency that has allowed you to thrive? So that was three questions. Do they all have to be the same answer? But I would say there is one answer. And I would say that is the ability to work with other people. Mm. That's what it comes down to. I don't care whether you're selling cars, selling sponsorship. Success comes when you take care of other people. And you think about other people. Have you always been that way or have you learned that way? I think I had to learn it in different parts of the different times and of my growth and my living and my careers. It's grown each in each of them. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, today, sure, I'm still selfish at times. Um, I still do really selfish things and I can be egocentric and, and think about me and nobody else. But I do it less than I used to do it. The, what you might term, you know, success that I've had would be from making sure that I work well with other people. Yeah. We don't live in a silo. We're not an island unto ourselves. You have been successful in a variety of things. You're a well-known author. You're a sought-after speaker. You are considered to be a rainmaker, connector of deals, and have crafted and brokered and been a part of some really significant legacies in terms of sponsorship. What holds you towards success? What drives behind that success? What drives that success is wanting to achieve that success, I think. Um, I've never really thought about it like that, but I look at it and I look at what what am I put here to do? And whether 
points in this career in sponsorship or whether it was in support marketing or whether it was in the restaurant and hotel business or the restaurant business, nightclub business that I was in prior. They all hey, wait, came wait, down. Wait, wait. You, you also have a nightclub in your CV? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. I didn't know about that, my friend. <laughs> so let me answer your question and then you can go all the way back. <laughs> That's where you're supposed to ask the question. Tell me how it all started, right? So <laughs> I look at it and I go, with, what am I here to do? And yeah. I'm here to do one thing. And that one thing is make the lives of others easier. You know, whether that's making sure they have a job, making sure that their food in the restaurant is hot and tasty and healthy, or whether it's putting two people together to do a sponsorship deal, or whether it is to mentor or train somebody. They're all about trying to do good and watch other people be happy and be successful. So if I use an example, I used to work for Red Lobsters. Started with that chain when we had one store in Canada and left three or four years later when we had 46 stores. I think I opened 16 restaurants as a manager. And in each of those cases, the goal was to you know, make profit for General Mills, who owned Red Lobster at the time, was to make a profit for them. But the satisfaction that I got was actually when the two little old ladies that came in for lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, and when they finished their lunch at four o'clock, because they were just talking the whole time, and they say, tell the chef in the back, that was the best sole almondine I've ever had. I kind of look and that's what makes the day because I have a 16 year old kid in the back, you know, he's washing dishes and, and cooking at the same time. And he, it's not a chef. He doesn't have any papers at all. They were happy. They enjoyed their meal at the same time in that same restaurant. If I'm making a profit, I get a good bonus check and my boss is happy and his boss is happy and her boss is happy. Right. So it comes down to making people happy. And today, you know, I look at some of the deals that I've done, as you said, over the years and uh, in Calgary, I look at the, the Macklin Ford and I know it's still running the Macklin moment in the broadcast for the flames. And that deal was done in 1994 or 95. And it took me three years to do that deal. But when it was done, it was done with Danny McCullough, who owned Macklin at the time. It's not owned by the McCullough family anymore. But, you know, it took a long time to get there. And it still exists today. And I know it was the right thing for that car dealership. And it obviously was because they're still doing it here 20 years later or more, right? So it's that satisfaction that things worked, that things you saw success, whether it was a couple having dinner or whether it's a company being successful in their marketing or whether it's watching, you know, go back to the Red Lobster scenario. One of the Red Lobsters, the one in Ottawa, I went into that Red Lobster for dinner that I had opened. One of the ones I'd opened in the Ottawa Gatineau area. The girl that was a hostess, a 15-year-old hostess, was now the general manager of that restaurant. And the kid that was actually like 16 or 17 at the time and, and was in the back, you know, in the dish pit and on the cooking line, he was his associate general manager. So he was second in command in that store. And these, you know, and this was 15 years later. And it was, you know, he kind of like, like a parent. Wow, my kids grew up. Look, look where they are now. They're the general manager and the associate manager. And it's that those satisfactions that I feel successful. 
you know, it sounds like, you know, all the touch points in your life really are anchored by being driven by purpose. Do you have your own barometer in terms of like the things you'll do? And if it doesn't give you purpose, you don't do it? No, unfortunately, I can't say I'm not sophisticated. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I just fly by the seat of my pants. If it feels right, I do it. If it doesn't feel right, I don't. I, I, I literally don't plan it. And I, I've made mistakes along the way a lot. All I can do is continue to try and get better. And, and I know that we'll never reach perfection. There's lots of people that want to be perfect. And I'm clearly aware that perfection is unachievable. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the goal to reaching perfection that I pursue, not perfection itself, you know, not to be the perfect, wonderful person, but to work towards being that. And if I can improve every single day, which I don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not, <laughs> I, don't, I don't improve every day, I have setbacks. The, the reality is that if I can continue to do what's right, then mm-hmm. I'll be successful and I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know about yourself and knowing what you know about leaders and leadership, what's the one characteristic that you believe every leader should possess? The ability to listen. Several of your guests have also addressed that. You know, yeah. they, they've talked about listening and being good listeners. And I think that from my experience, it's listening to learn instead of listening to respond. And that's what we tend to do. Mm-hmm. We all tend to, you ask me a question, so I'm listening to you, but I'm listening to you so that I can respond to what you say. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is we don't receive it and process it. We just respond. So that type of listening isn't the one I'm talking about. It's about the listening to learn and, and sitting down with that employee and listening to them why they were late or listening to why they need time off or listening to why they're taking this other job and it's best for their career, that this isn't the right program for that sponsor or for that, for that corporation or company, listening to understand what their goals and objectives are, and then building the right program to do that. Mm-hmm. And I can't build the right sponsorship program for somebody unless I clearly, clearly understand what their goals are, what their objectives are, what their budget is, a whole bunch of different elements. And if all I do is go into a meeting and ask questions and record the answers, and I'm not listening to learn, mm-hmm. I won't be successful. And I think that leaders are the ones that listen and learn, whether that's learn how to do the job better. I mean, when I worked for Red Lobster and Chi-Chi's, they both had their management training programs were both tremendous. And they forced you to go through the entire system. On my first day on the job after graduating from university, I showed up to Chi-Chi's Mexican restaurants. I showed up in a tie and a suit and because I was an assistant kitchen manager. So that was what I had been hired to do uh, at a whopping $15,000 a year, um, 80 hours a week, works up to about a buck 89 an hour. I showed up. You know what I did that very first day? For anybody that's listening that's in a restaurant business or whatever has ever worked in a restaurant, I, I was the dish guy and I had to clean a grease pit. And I threw that suit out afterwards because the grease pits, the the place where all the garbage and all the junk and everything else goes underneath the dish area. And it had to be in those days scooped out and cleaned out all the crap that's at the top and the waters underneath and the oil that's formed and all that type of stuff. They had training programs. So I did that. I worked every position in the kitchen. I worked as a server. I worked as a bartender. I worked as everything. 
so that I could manage better, which would make me a better leader because I actually understood the jobs to some extent. Was I perfect in any of them? No. Was I as good as my servers, my dishwashers, my line cooks? Absolutely not. But I could feel and understand what they went through. And I had to listen to them to learn even back then. And I think that was the biggest turning point for me on this listen to learn reality was that if I just watched them, I wasn't learning. And if I listened to them and I just went and did it, I wasn't learning. But if I listened to understand and ask questions to understand, then I was learning. It takes a great deal of self-awareness to get to that level, doesn't it? It does. And I keep coming back. And I love you for this. I mean, you're making me sound really good, but I'm not that sophisticated. It didn't work that way. It it wasn't a lot of self-awareness. It wasn't a lot of strategy or or planning. It was just the way I was brought up. Right. Mm -hmm. It was just do good by others and they'll do good by you, take care of others uh, and work hard. And I think that that's that's the basis of it. I mean, there's, I, I know there's leadership courses. I know there's, and you do an amazing job with that stuff. And it's, it, but it comes down to, mm-hmm. I was just lucky. And uh, I just did a couple of things, which is take care of other people. And it seems to have worked out. I love how humble you were to say that your success has just been luck. Luck doesn't work that way, my friend. I think it's embedded in your DNA in terms of who you are. I can absolutely say for as long as I've known you and have seen you in you know different sort of environments, you walk the walk and you talk that talk. It's extraordinary. And the fact that you, know, you call it luck. I taught my daughter this uh, a long time ago. Mm. Uh, she's 16 now. But there's also walking the walk and sometimes you have to put on a, a show that is, might not be you, but to get to where you need to go, mm-hmm. you need to put on that image. And we were in Hawaii and she was young. She was four or five. And we had to go to the washroom. We found this really fancy hotel that was, you know, on the strip in Waikiki. And, and it was just her and me. My, my wife was, I don't know where she was. She was somewhere else. We went in and it was, um, I don't even know the name of the hotel, but it was very high end. And so we found where the washroom was and they were really cool. It was like high end Japanese washrooms. I mean, toilets, they, they wiped you, they sprayed you, they cleaned you. The toilet paper was automated. The seats were heated. You know, they were heated and cooled. It was Hawaii. I would never leave. <laughs> exactly. So, so, uh, and you know, for a five-year-old kid or a four-year-old kid, this is all pretty cool, right? Because we just had the plastic seats at home right so so uh it was it was pretty cool so every time we've been back to hawaii and waikiki we go there and what i taught her was that we don't work in this world we don't live in this world like we won't ever stay in a hotel like this like this just isn't we can't afford it number one but we it just isn't us right so i said when you walk in you have to walk like you own the place and nobody will ask you any questions and we go back to that hotel and we've been there three or four times now just to use the washroom. We might not even have to go to the washroom, but we go to the washroom so that we can go. And she's learned that if you walk through, like you own the place, nobody will ever stop you. I mean, they've got doormen, they've got all this other stuff and you just walk in like you own the place and so be it. Nobody says anything. If you walk in looking confused, they know you don't belong there. Mm-hmm. Really is a way to teach confidence, isn't it? Yeah. So now you've learned how to get into hotels where you don't belong, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you had me at fancy dancing magical toilets still. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've worked with such 
a diverse group of people and complexities. What do you think is the biggest challenge that you see leaders face today? I mean, you've got such a such this intimate inside track because you know when we talk most of, most of the times when we talk about leadership, it's very sort of this vertical play, and you get to play with this lateral. You get to put a whole bunch of different leaders in a room to be able to find consensus and to be able to put that deal together. What's the biggest thing that you see, like in terms of the challenges that they face? What gets in their way that you see? I can answer it within a scope of the sponsorship world right now, not the bigger world. I think that the biggest stumbling block, the biggest thing that gets in their way is making sure that they're serving every master. When you put a sponsorship program, when you were at the ballet or anybody did it five, eight, eight or more years ago, 10 years ago or longer, mm-hmm. it was a deal between two people, the yep. sponsor and the property. But there's three legs on that stool now. And you need all three legs. And that third leg is the consumer, the audience, or the ticket holder, or the fan. I don't care who it is. Leaders have to make sure that their world, let's let's say it's, it's, a, it's a sponsor, let's say it's a the CIBC, a BMO, I, I don't care who it is, TELUS, whatever. That decision maker has to look out for the well-being of TELUS, but they have to look out to make sure that their partner, let's call it the Flames, let's call it the Boys and Girls Club, the Canadian Cancer Society, whoever, that they're benefiting too, and they're getting what they need, but also that that third leg is getting it as well. Mm. And they didn't used to have all those issues. You know, in fact, there were years where a sponsor would come in and say, this is what we're doing. This is how much we're paying you. Take it or leave it. Right. And they were the bullies. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you had pro sports teams that did it the other way around. Do you want to be in here? Here's how much you pay. I've got a lineup. Go away. Right. If you know, if you don't want to pay that, go away. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work that way anymore. So I think that that's the biggest thing, because now that leader has to look at it and say, wow, if I do this, what's the reaction on social media? What's the reaction on every place else? How are my shareholders going to react? How are my staff going to react? And they didn't always think about all those things. And I think that that's the biggest stumbling block is that they have so many mouths to feed, so many answers, so many people and groups. So I'll give you an example. It was a, um, a festival in a small lakeside town in, in Ontario. They had a sponsor. It was Nestle. And Nestle supplied water, bottled water. So, and you can see where this is going. Nestle's would supply them with $5,000 in cash. And they'd also supply them with 10,000 bottles of water. And they would just give them that water. And then they would sell that water at $2 a bottle. So they're, they're, they're making $20,000. That's a nice business to have. You, you, your inventory costs nothing. Your labor's free because it's volunteers. And you're getting $2 a bottle on top of that, right? They could have sold it for three or whatever. So they're getting, selling their bottled water at their, as a concession item at their, at their festival. So they're getting $25,000 from this organization, from Nestle's. The end result is that there were three ladies that came to see the executive director of the festival and said, listen, you need to stop using Nestle's and need to stop using bottled water. And uh, he said, I, I can't because that's $25,000. That's our 60% of our operating budget for this festival. Yeah. And if I don't have that, I have to close it down. And they said, well, you need to find another way. And he didn't. He just kept going with Nestle. And so what did they do? They decided they would give him another chance and 
They went and saw him again. And he said, I can't. I've thought and I can't think of anything. There's no way I can do anything else. Maybe next year, right? And we all know next year never comes. So these ladies decided to go to Facebook and tell their story and tell their issue. And the pushback was so great that within less than a week, the festival had to say no to Nestle's and it went under. Okay. So we saved a whole bunch of lakes and we saved a whole bunch of bottles from getting in the ocean and all of that, which is fantastic. But we also put a bunch of people out of work. We also took a festival that created a community and we killed it. But I'm not blaming the ladies and I'm not blaming the guy. It could have worked together. In my mind, real leadership would have said, we need to find another way to do this. And, and you've heard this term from me before, and I use it a lot, the eight most expensive words in the English language. And that's, but we've always done it that way. This executive director for the festival couldn't come up with an answer on how to do it differently. There's lots of ways to do it differently. I, and I'm not the solution to come up with all those ways, but let's talk to Nessies and find another solution, mm-hmm. right? Or let's find Culligan and see if they'll do it. And we can sell water fill-ups into mm-hmm. refillable bottles, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of ways to encourage people to bring their own. Let's get somebody else to donate a bunch of canister bottles with our logo on it and their logo on it. And we give it to everybody at the gate and then they can pay for water. That's what, in my mind, real leadership would have done. Yeah. And, and, and the ladies, I think they have a, a part of this fate as well. I mean, they could have worked with them to come up with, an, with ideas instead of just saying, unless you do this, we're going to close you down. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that that would coming back to your question, like, what are these what do these leaders face? And they face so many more. They have to answer to so many more people, because mm-hmm. if that had been 20 years earlier, those ladies would have written a letter mm-hmm. and that executive director would have read that letter. Or even in modern times, they may have got it. He may have got an email and he might have shared it with his board of directors and said, we can't do anything else. Trust me. You know, this is the way it's going to go. And it would have been swept under the rug. But social media has created a voice. So I think that it's that voice when we look at it, scares a lot of leaders. And if you look at, at Mr. McCain over at, uh, at, at Maple Leaf, you know, I mean, he's not scared. They're truly a leader in my mind. I mean, he, you know, he's not scared. He's, he stands up when, you know, the, the stereo outbreak happened. He got on TV and said, we killed people. I'm sorry. We're going to find out how and why it happened. And this is what we're going to do didn't skirt the issue. He didn't say it wasn't our fault. It came in from somebody else. It, you know, he took responsibility, stepped up to the plate. And today he, he runs a company that, that their philosophy isn't we owe the shareholder. It's we owe the shareholder. We owe the staff. We owe the, we owe the environment. It's got a three-pronged setup and our consumers, so four. But people that buy Maple Leaf products hopefully know that they're environmentally produced, environmentally soundly, that the animals are, are, are safe, that, you know, all these sorts of things, because he's actually created a, a socially conscious company out of Maple Leaf. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. So I think that those leaders can get past it, but they're going to have to be courageous to do so. And that's a term that one of, one of your speakers or one of your guests on the podcast said before. It's about being courageous. Leadership takes great courage. It's yeah. so, and, and in itself, it is such an inside job. What do you think makes a difference between leadership at Maple Leaf and leadership of this festival? I, I don't know either of these people personally. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even know the name of the guy in the small town in Ontario. The, the reality is that I, I think what might be the difference between them. So this is just speculation, but the difference might be that the small guy in small town, northern Ontario, he had a lot at stake. And that was a festival rode on his shoulders. And he didn't have the backing of a large company to be able to do, to do, to turn around and say, we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. We are going to get rid of Nestle's and we're going to find another way, or we're not going to do it at all. And we're still going to, we're going to run by the shoestrings, you know, and there was a fear. And I think that that's a fear that exists. Mm-hmm. And then you take a look at, at Michael McCain and you look at it and go, wow, but he had employees and he had, he had thousands of employees that, that were at risk and, 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 and consumers. Like he didn't have 2,000 people coming. The, the festival had 2,000 people coming. He has 200 million people eating his product every day, right? So he's got way more at risk to some mm-hmm. extent. But he also is he's got a multi-million dollar company behind him to back him, mm-hmm. right? There is a, a slush fund there to hell. Mm-hmm. I would imagine a small town festival doesn't have a big bank account. No. Say, okay, if we screw up this year, we've still got 50 grand sitting in the bank. And that'll run us for another couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, and that's, it's a safety net that's there. Not to say that Michael McCain had, had did this because he had a safety net. I, I, that would be wrong. But I think it also... It's about that leadership, like we were talking about beforehand, the recognition that I, I made at the beginning about uh, the land that, I, that I'm broadcasting from today on the Coast of People's Land. In doing so, when I, I wrote my Tuesday morning commentary that, that came out about this, I, I had to talk about the fact that if you had asked me to make that read that four years ago, probably wouldn't have, you know, and as my article talked about, it, it talked about it's in bits and pieces that I've learned and I've come to accept what colonialism has done and, and what we were brainwashed or colonial washed with in, in school. And, and then, you know, last May when the first uh, remains were found in Kamloops at the, at the residential school, that was an awakening moment for me. And uh, by then, you know, I mean, Truth and Reconciliation report had already come out and everything. Have I read it? No. Had I read it by then? No. Have I read it today? No. But I was braver when I put that article out than I wouldn't have had that confidence to have done that two years ago. But mm-hmm. in, and it's not anything that happened with anybody else. It's what happened, as you said, with me inside. I mean, it's, it's leadership is an internal game, right? Yeah. So. so you touch on fear versus courage. And then to have the courage from your perspective, as well as the two gentlemen that we just spoke about, is really the ability to listen and listen to learn. So perhaps maybe, of course, the path that you're taking is leaning into the ability to listen, the ability to listen to learn. And maybe perhaps Maple Leaf had that and maybe had better access to the ability to learn to listen. Maybe he had teams that he could go to in terms of crisis management. What should we do? What should this look like? Let's go to my marketing team. Let's go to legal. Let's go to this. Let's go to this. Sure, I mean, that's a luxury. But he himself had to have the ability to listen before making his own decisions on what should happen. 
do you know how much better you pulled my whole life together and 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 taken what I do uh, by the seat of my pants and, and you tied it all together? <laughs> yeah, just it, it's so easy to draw those linkages. And I love those linkages because we can link that to what you've learned and how you've built a successful career. And when I say successful career, I mean living with purpose. And living with passion and being able to walk the walk and talk the talk and be prideful of the things that you've done and to be humble to say that you don't know everything and that you're still learning. I mean, what a beautiful leadership lesson that is. You had asked somebody difference between leadership and management. Yeah. And it made me recollect that when I was working at Chi Chi's at Steels and Dufferin in Toronto, I had a boss. His name was Hans Bossman. And he was the general manager of that Chi-Chi's. And there was a, he ran probably the best Chi-Chi's in Canada at the time. Like it was well-organized, run like clockwork, good profit margin for the, for the store, all that type of stuff, right? I was, you know, management trainee under him. And so I, I remember asking him, how do you, how do you do this? Like, how do you, how do you run this restaurant that's, you know, got, 500 seats in it and 125 employees and and everything seems to run like clockwork i'm talking to other people that are in management trainee program and their gms all the other gms in town say you got the easiest store in the world to run and uh how, how true is that and he just looked at me and said and i've tried to live by this my entire life from that point so that would have been 1983 he said my job as a manager because he, he wasn't a strong leader. He was a good manager. He wasn't a strong leader. I try to anticipate what might happen, solve the problems before they ever occur. And then things run smoothly. I don't have an easy store. I just anticipate the problems and I solve them before they occur. And all the other GMs manage from crisis management. Mm. And that's why they run around like a chicken with their head cut off on a Friday night, short-staffed and out of food. So my job as a manager is to anticipate the problems, solve them before they occur. And I had taken that in my life through my entire life, whether it was with work or play or, or whatever. I think that that, when it's done right, is leadership. It is anticipating the problems that may occur and solving them before they happen. So that my customers, my staff, my shareholders, my whoever it is, they don't ever have issues. They, and that comes back to that trying to do things to make other people's lives good, right? So that that server can come in and work their shift and make their tips and make their salary and make people smile and happy. And, and because I've got enough food to go on the plates and I've got enough bus people to, to wipe the tables so they can turn their tables over faster so they can make more money and serve more customers or the sponsor that buys the package and it increases their sales by four and a half percent. And, and, you know, in that time period, and they were only looking for 2% growth or that, that property that, you know, is doing a, $100,000 a year deal where the biggest deal they had ever done before was $20,000 or whatever it is. It's, it's about doing those deals, figuring out what are all the problems? What is everything that could go wrong if we do this deal? And let's fix those things first. 
Have you ever had the opportunity to go back and let him know the profound impact that he made on you? And how Unfortunately that- not. By the time I was right enough to figure out what he had given me, mm-hmm. he was nowhere to be found. It was so we knew by 85, I had left Chi-Chi's and went to work for Red Lobster. And by 88, Chi-Chi's had gone under because they Canada killed them. Uh, <laughs> Hundred stores across North America, ten yeah. of them in Canada, and they were making money hand over fist until they came into Canada. And they misjudged the market costs and stuff like that. And he actually did. After that, he came to me when I was at Red Lobster and wanted me to work. He was working for a company called Sarah Lee. You probably know the cakes, yeah. um, but they had a chain of restaurants in the states as well. And he wanted me to come work for him in the states. I would have had. You know, coast to coast area supervisor living in Chicago. Uh, he told me, make sure you get an apartment near the airport because you won't be living in your apartment very much. And uh, I, I never took that job. I, I stayed with Red Lobster at the time. And, um, but that would have been the last time I saw him or heard from him. So that would have been 85, 86. When the internet came out, I did go look, but I couldn't find it. There's nothing there. And there's nothing today. I've looked, I've Googled everything. I've tried Facebook. I've tried what. Whenever people ask me about a mentor, yeah. it's top of the list. Perhaps didn't even know it at the time. Wasn't even aware that I'm going to have this significant impact. My three-minute conversation with Brent is going to be embedded in every single thing he does. He lives, he breathes, and it's going to become a part of his own culture and DNA. It's extraordinary. And we don't know when we do that. You talk about that with Hans, but you, I go back and I look at that hostess and I look at that line cook and I look at people who you know have jobs that I worked with 10 years ago 15 20 years ago right and there are tops of top echelons and organizations and you don't know when you're going to make an impact on somebody and that's why you need as a leader in my opinion you need to be looking out for them all the time Uh, I was I think it was Red Lobster and I uh, I couldn't get a promotion to area supervisor and so I finally said to my area supervisor, this just sucks. I'm going to go work for another company because I'm not, I'm not, there's no upward mobility. Mm-hmm. And he was really good. Um, he said to me, he said, you don't get promoted because you have nobody to take your place. You run and you're, you're a great general manager. Now, why would we move you up and put somebody in that's going to screw up the store? Until mm-hmm. you can develop somebody, until you can find your own replacement, you're not moving up the ladder. You know, I had developed a lot of managers under me but they had all been through training programs that were going to other stores that we were opening, right? So it's sometimes, as a leader, you're really good at your job. And Mm -hmm. you don't have to be the top echelon in a company to be a leader. In that world, that you've got that leadership role, titled or untitled, that you're not going to move up unless you can find somebody to replace you. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the, the opening for me to say, okay, it's not just about the two old ladies that are happy with their dinner. It's about making sure that my subordinates can take my job. Mm-hmm. And a real leader doesn't fear about losing their job, but it's also picking. And, and this comes back to the listening part. When I was in the nightclub business, I had to find a new club manager like that would run that end of the building. And there was a perfect guy for it. His name was Donnie McNeil. He'd been a, he'd been a doorman at the club for 15 years. He was, it was a small town. It was Fredericton, New Brunswick. Everybody in the city respected him. 
everybody knew who Donnie was, you know, and uh, he could go in the grocery store, at, you know, and uh, everybody would know him and they'd give him food and all that type of stuff, right? But he ran, you know, as, a, as the head doorman, did a good job. He didn't, he didn't break the rules. You know, he bent the rules sometimes, but he did what was right all the time. When we needed a new club and manager, like the club manager, I said, you're the perfect shoe-in for it. You're like, you've got the respect of all the staff, the community, the, the clients. Let's move you up. And he said, no, I don't want the responsibility. I enjoy what I do. And that's a leader that knows where and what they want. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I got mad at him and everything else. No, no, this is better. It's you know more money. It's more responsibility. It's better. You'll have a larger future, blah, blah, blah. This is a nightclub. Like, who's got a future in a nightclub? Um, so, so the reality was that he said, no, I enjoy my job and I enjoy doing what I do. And that's where my leadership is, right? And I had to kind of shake my head and go, wow, he's got it screwed on right. That to me is a leader, but I had to listen to that and understand that before, right? Yes, yes, yes. So many leadership lessons, so many nuggets you're dropping. I want to touch on one more thing. You know, that fear versus courage, that ability to listen. And one thing that I don't know necessarily if it stood out to you, but stood out to me is that the lesson you've given me today is to remind people of their worth. You've seen difficult conversations, obviously yelling at this, you know, poor guy that didn't want to go up the leadership ladder. That's quite happy with where he was. Cause that's what he wanted. I got mad at him. I never said, I never said I yelled at him. I probably did. I probably did, but I just said, uh, you're putting out your pretty words in my mouth, right? So. What wisdom can you impart in terms of being a leader and having difficult conversations? I think that, um, and it comes with time more than anything else, mellowing. Those difficult conversations are sometimes controlling anger, mm-hmm. understanding people are different, and that I don't have the power over that, right? So that brings me back and grounds me. And when you have those difficult conversations, from my experience, and this is only my experience, it is about understanding and listening to their side of the table, to their side and their point of view. Mm-hmm. because it may change my perspective. I had a guy, he wanted a raise and I'd already given him two raises and he was at the top echelon of the pay scale at Chi-Chi's in the kitchen at the time. He said, I can go on pogey. I can go on welfare and unemployment and sit at home and do nothing and get almost as much money as I'm getting here. And I said, I can't do anything about that. You know, I would love to keep you, but..." I'm paying you what you're worth right now. He left. Mm-hmm. And it was probably about a year later, he came back and, and it, he had another job. He got another job. He got more money and everything. And he said to me, he said, nobody has ever let me walk like that before. And it taught me a big lesson. And I said, I wasn't there to teach you a lesson. And I wasn't. I was just doing what was right. It wasn't fair to everybody else in that prep kitchen. And it wasn't fair to me to, you know, to put those demands and that threat. And so, and the same thing happened when I was at Red Lobster, I had got myself in some trouble. I had asked for a transfer uh, as a manager. I asked uh, for transfer and they said, we'll get back to you. So that took three weeks to get back to me. And so I'm 
dealing with staff that are not some issues with some with one of them and all that type of stuff. And that goes on for three weeks. Mm. And so I uh, I'm in and it's a Monday morning. And my supervisor, area supervisor's in, and the phone rings and he answers it. It's a restaurant. So like it's early morning, there's nobody else there. He answers it, right? And um, he says, Oh, it's it's Bill Dover, who was the president and CEO of Red Lobster and uh, Canada, General Mills at the time. And he said he wants to talk to you. I said, Oh, okay. So I got on the phone with Bill and he said, listen, we've had a lot of thought about this, but you know what? You made your bed, sleep in it. We're not moving you. We need you in that store. And I said, just right off the cuff, I just said, I understand that. I accept that. And take the three weeks that it took to give me an answer as my three weeks notice. I am done as of today. And then I just hung up, right? And then I went over and told the area supervisor and he said, I said, I, you know, when I finish at four o'clock today or six o'clock, whenever I leave, I'll leave my keys in the safe, all that type of stuff. And he said, your closing manager just called in sick. And so, and your other two managers are away and I have to do something with my family tonight. What the heck am I supposed to do? Why, why couldn't you quit tomorrow? Right. <laughs> I said, listen, you trust me. I will close the restaurant tonight. Nobody knows I'm quitting except for you, me and Bill Dover. And um, uh, I'll leave the keys in the safe. So I closed down. All the staff left. It was one in the morning. I put the keys in the safe, locked up the safe, went out, put on the alarm, left the building. Boom, done. What was interesting, that afternoon, Bill Dover called me back. And he called me back a couple of days later and said, listen, we'll give you any story you want. Just tell us where you want to go. Just and I said, I didn't threaten you. I didn't tell you, give me what I want or I'm going to quit. You had the choice to make what you thought was the right choice. And I had the opportunity to make the choice that I thought was right. I didn't threaten you. I am not coming back to work for you. I'd love to, but I'm not coming back to work for the restaurant because then I've threatened you and I got my job back because I threatened you. And that's not the intention. And so when we look at difficult conversations, wow. it comes back to, to I think, Difficult conversations have to come from the heart mm -hmm. and you have to believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I made a snap decision on that telephone, like to say, consider, I don't know where the hell it came from, but consider those three weeks of me waiting to be my three weeks notice. Right. Um, and, um, but it was the right thing. It clearly was. So, you know, there's, as you go through your path in life and you, you have those difficult conversations, whether it's uh, asking somebody to marry you, whether it's uh, teaching your kids something, whether it's working with an employee, whether it's closing a big deal. And sometimes you have to tell somebody they're not the right choice or that they're not the solution or that idea doesn't work. All you can do is be honest and try and find, unlike the, um, festival guy, uh, try and find a solution. And that's the alternative, right? Yeah. I also think, and it's extraordinary because every single time I get connected with you, I always learn more things about you, which is always fascinating and you know, so admirable. One last question before we leave. Where does this moral compass come from? It's beautiful. I think it probably came from my parents, I'm guessing. And it, it, um, it didn't exist with me all my life, as I said earlier. This June, I think it'll be 26 years clean and sober. Um, so you can imagine. Warrior, you're a warrior. Well yeah. done, my friend. Well done. 
you can imagine, there must have been something pretty hellish to have done to have quit drinking for 26 years, right? So, uh, so when you stop to look at that, it's that there was a lot of years of probably, I'm saying probably because I'm on a podcast right now, I can tell you for sure it was true, ill repute and, and things done that I should never have done and, and all that type of stuff, right? Those are all paths we take. And I think that those morals and that profile and that taking care of people was instilled by my parents and it was probably neglected for a lot of years. And when I came out, the support program that I use, um, which is probably familiar to everybody here, it's just a couple of letters long. That's a support system that's there. And it's through that that I've really recognized the need to help others, right? This, my friends, right here, right now, is Leadership in Action. Thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for having me and congratulations on all your success. It's amazing. You're just wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Allison Geskin. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow. And a great free way to support this podcast is to review and rate it. Always remember, my friends, that the most powerful thing you can be is you.